the National Archives podcast series, Lost in London, presented by Dave Annell. I'm going to look at what London is, because I think that's quite an important thing to define what London, what we mean when we say London. And it's more to do with when we say it than what we're talking about itself, because London has changed. Why is London different? Look at the key sources online and on-site, and we'll pay particular attention to maps, to parish registers, to burials and cemetery records, to wills, uh, apprentices and guilds, and then lists of names. I always say that any document that has a name, a date and a place on it is potentially of interest to family historians. So we'll look at some lists of names. And then, hoping we have time, I'll do a quick case study using some of the sources that we've talked at to show you how you can link it all together. So, what is London? Um, start with a bit of topography. How do we define London? What do we mean when we say London? We could talk about the city of London itself, the, the square mile, which you can just see on this lovely old map here of 1572, Hufnagel's map of 1572, the city of London, bounded by the old wall round there. So we could refer to London as the city. Even in 1572, though, you can see that London spreads out towards Westminster, up towards Hoban around here, and up Shoreditch, up this way. So even in 1572, London already burst free of the, the city walls. Um, and even south of the river, we can see Southwark spreading out around the bridge in this area here, where some of the, the theatres were, of course, the Globe being down there. Um, at this stage, we can see London Bridge there, it wasn't until 1729 that Putney Bridge opened. So at this time, this was the only crossing the river down River of Kingston. So there was no other way of getting across. Obviously, there, were, there would be ferries going back and forward, but in terms of a bridge, London Bridge was the only one until 1729. We could, when we talk about London, refer to London County, which was established in 1889, which incorporated the city, along with parts of the ancient counties of Middlesex, Surrey and Kent. Um, or, since 1965, we could talk about Greater London. It took in all of Middlesex, parts of Essex and Hertfordshire, more bits of Surrey and Kent. And of course, at that date, 1965, Kew became part of London. Certainly, if we were talking to someone in 1572, there is no way that Kew would have been considered London or anything like London. It's a long, long way from London. Um, now it's part of the county of London, it's on the London Underground, so clearly it's become London. So what we mean by London is always changing, expansion, urban sprawl, swallowing up the little towns and villages. This is not by any means a new phenomenon. Clerkenwell um, is one of those villages that was swallowed up. Because Samuel Pepys, in his diary entry for Sunday 2nd of October 1664, writes, So away, back to Clerkenwell Church, and after church, walked all over the fields home. In John Stripe's 1720 survey of London, Clerkenwell is listed among the suburbs of London. So I suppose nowadays we think of London as pretty much everything inside the M25. So even where I live in Watford has sort of been swallowed up by London. People start to think of Watford as part of London. But we still need to be careful when we talk about this, what, how we refer to these places. Walthamstow, West Ham, definitely we'd think of those as London, but our Victorian ancestors wouldn't have done. They were out in Essex. Same with Greenwich, Lewisham. 
those are in Kent. We might think of them as London now, but our ancestors definitely didn't. So when we're saying our ancestors came from London, we've got to be a little bit careful about how they referred to them. Cricklewood, Uxbridge, the same. Uh, Middlesex. So why is London different? For a start, London consisted of over 200 ecclesiastical parishes. Over 200 parishes. There's over 100 in the city alone. Quite small parishes, some of them, but very active, big populations in them, even though geographically they're quite small. London had 10 probate courts, 10 different places where wills could be proved in London. The population increased massively, an estimated 200,000 in 1600, so about the time of that map, there were only 200,000 people living in London, to just under a million by 1801, and nearly seven times that just 100 years later in 1901. So from 200,000 in 1600 to 7 million by 1901, it's just a phenomenal increase. And of course that increase can't be accounted for just by natural population growth it's clear that vast numbers of people were moving into London. And its immigration, of course, isn't just about people m coming in from distant lands, it's about people coming from different parts of the country as well. London has always drawn people from all parts of England and indeed Wales, Scotland and Ireland. And this brings us to the, the second sort of problem of dealing with London ancestors, because the chances are that our London ancestors didn't really come from London. They can't have done it. There's only 200,000 there in 1600 and the 7 million in 1901. Chances are they didn't actually come from London. What we need to do is first find them in London and then find out where they came from before they turned up in the capital. That's the way we're looking at it. So really, if we're talking about this, this subject, we're really not trying to find our London ancestors, but where they came from before. London has huge numbers of archives and libraries. Um, unfortunately, some of them threatened now, but... We need to support them. We need to use our local libraries. Of course, there's the London Metropolitan Archives, which is effectively the county record office for London. But there's also Guildhall Library, which has a, a smaller collection than it used to because so much of it is now available at the uh, LMA. But then there's the City of Westminster Archives. It's an entirely different authority, which has its, very, uh, its own very large collection of records. And then, of course, there are all the borough and local studies libraries. So there is a load, load of different places where material could be held. So don't just look at the LMA and think, right, I've done all the London stuff. Think where else things might be held. Let's have a look at a few sources. And I'll start, as I promised, with maps. I love maps. I, I spend hours looking at maps, just looking at how, how the, the land looked when my ancestors lived there or people that I'm researching at the time. You get a fantastic feeling for it, just for what life was like by looking at these maps. And some of them are incredibly detailed. Horwood's map, I put 1799, it was actually work in progress that lasted for about 25 years, different, different versions. But it's an unbelievably detailed map. Um, I'll just show you a little bit of it. The detail is quite stunning. I'm going to show you the area around, the, the same area around Clerkenwell that we were looking at before. But look at the detail of that. Every house shown, every house numbered as well. This is the bit. So this is, for those of you who were familiar with the Family Record Centre, look at that triangle there. That is why the Family Record Centre was triangular shaped, because this was where, to a degree, London ended for a while. Clerkenwell's down this way. This is Rosamond Street coming up here. This is Exmouth Market, or ba Bain's Row, as it was called then. And this was the lands of 
uh, the New River Company. And there was nothing built on that. They bought the, that land in the 17th century and nothing was built until the early 19th century. So for a couple of hundred years, London ended there. And there was actually a gate there. Now you imagine, you come up to the end of a road and there's a gate. You want to go over there to New Merlin's Cave. You want to go up there to Pentonville Road. You want to go over there to Sadler's Wells. So just paths form in the field. And then years later, those become the lines. And there is actually another one there up to Merlin's Cave. Those become the lines of the roads when they're set down. So that's Garnalt Place, that's Upper Rosamond Street. That's remarkable how that happened there. And that's just because London stopped there, because there was fields in front and people could walk over them, but they couldn't build on it. So those, that became the shape. So if you ever wondered why the Family Record Centre was triangular, that's why. And that explains it. So let's just go back here. So Horwood's map, just fantastically detailed. And this just to show you how much change there was in London in the early 19th century. This is Greenwood's map of 1827. If you want to find these, just Google them. Just, just Google Horwood, Google Greenwood, you'll, you'll find these maps. Okay, so this is the map actually that we were looking at at the start. So here is that same Atiso Street, that's the other one. So there we are, there's the same junction here. And you can see the roads going off at the different angles to the various places. So this one... Garnet Place going up to Sadler's Wells, up to Pentonville, and up to the New Merlin's Cave there. So the same shape of the land. This is, and this is very important because when you look at consecutive maps, okay, sometimes there are wholesale changes, but generally speaking, the roads stay the same. The buildings in the roads might change, but the, the shape chain stays the same. And just suddenly all that area is built up in the, in the uh, 1820s and so on. I love these Charles Booth's poverty maps. They're absolutely wonderful. Great resource. All available online again. And this is probably the favourite bit, the descriptions of the people. Now, the way he did it, he went, he, he, well, he didn't go around. He paid people very small amounts of money to go around and carry out these surveys. They actually talked to people in all the roads. And they've got a very rough guide to their wealth or otherwise. And then they went and coloured the maps in. And these are the colours they use. Yellow for upper, middle and wealth and, and upper classes, your ancestors. Uh, red, middle class, pink, fairly comfortable, purple, mixed and so on. Dark blue, very poor, casual, chronic want. And then this one, black, lowest class, vicious, semi-criminal. I love the way he, he suddenly he's making comments about these people. Here he's just very factual here, but up here. I mean, Charles Booth was a great man and he did some really, really good things and his work did help a lot, of, a lot of very poor people just to identify poverty and to talk about it in that way. But the language is a bit strange. Vicious, semi-criminal, that's my ancestors up the top there, that is, definitely. Um, but you can, you can do the same thing. You can click on the maps and you can zoom in. I'll just zoom in on a random area just to see what sort of variety you get in relatively small places. Um, you sort of think, oh, it's a wealthy area or it's a, a poor area. But look at this area here. Where we're up in Hoxton. So there's some pretty nice places up here. There's obviously newer buildings have been put up, some pretty nice places. But you come down here, just across the road there, and you've got this vicious semi-criminal people just living there. Um, all human life is there, but they, they really are they're fantastic book, um, maps. And there are the field books that, went, that go with them as well that you can look at just to find a little bit more about what the world was like there. Um, <coughs> printed maps, these... Uh, a to Z, Regency London, Victorian London, Georgian London, there's Elizabethan London as well as a few others um, <coughs> that have been published. 
Very, very good. Nice detail on them, particularly. And in fact, that the Regency one is Horwood's map of London, 1799. So <coughs> those are available for sale. Um, and I'm going to show you a few books as we go on. Some of these are quite old editions. Some of them may be out of print. But these wonderful guides produced by the West Surrey Family History Society. And uh, particularly, we, we need to thank Mr. Cliff Webb for producing these. I'm going to mention Cliff Webb a few times today because he's done so much for London research. Um, genealogical research in late Victorian and Edwardian London and genealogical research in Victorian London. And what these are, because you get with them a lovely map, um, <coughs> you get just, it's, it's arranged by the registration districts and then within each of the civil registration districts you have the parishes. So there's little code numbers there. You look up the numbers in there, it tells you when the church started, where the registers are held, and everything like that. It's really, really good guides. Um, so if you haven't found them in one parish, you, you might know where else to look. And finally on maps, our favourite Godfrey maps. I mean, these are wonderful. Uh, various dates, so no, normally about 1870, about 1890, and about 1910 they published them. Again, very, very good detail. Not quite as detailed as Horwood's maps, but you do get buildings, you even get outhouses and things in, in the gardens and workhouses where people would, would be carrying out their trade. So these are available for the whole of London, in fact, for the whole of the UK, because they're the Ordnance Survey maps, large-scale ones. Right. I first did this talk several years ago, and the whole focus of the talk was where you had to go to find things which record office you need to go to. Now, in the last couple of years, so much material for London has become available online that everything has changed. It is much, much easier to find London ancestors than it was even two or three years ago. The change is just phenomenal. Um, the most important new resource is the Ancestry database, the London Parish Registers. If we go to birth, marriage, and death, we get very impatient waiting for web pages to load, don't we? But if you compare this with what we used to have to do, this is nothing. If you wait a couple of minutes, it's not a big problem. Um, well, there's a collection, London Metropolitan Archives collection, but you can, you can get to it various ways. Uh, this is a database here. This isn't the whole of the collection. But you can search in this database here. There's, the London Parish Registers are in s several different parts, but this, this one here... London, England, baptisms, marriages and burials, 1538 to 1812. Now, we know that there are gaps in it. We know that they haven't done everything. Um, there are bits of parish registers missing. But you can now at least start your search just by putting in names and seeing what you find. You now don't have to do all that legwork, working out where your family's likely to be, um, finding out which registers are available. You can just search in one go. You have to... It comes with the usual health warnings about transcription. Um, you know, there's some pretty poor transcription out there. But if you have a look at the, the material that they're dealing with, the original parish registers can be very, very difficult to read. So I always feel before I criticise or laugh at any transcription, and I do laugh at some of the transcription, I look at the original and I think, yeah, okay, they've actually done a pretty good job. And nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100, they have done a very good job. So that is a, a huge database, London Parish Registers, online, um, from the comfort of your own home. 
There are also collections of non-conformist registers. The National Archives' own holdings of non-conformist registers are available online through a website called BMD Registers. Uh, but also the Ancestry have put the LMA's collection of non-conformist registers for London online. So they can be searched in the same way. Uh, don't forget Family Search, what used to be the IGI. Well, that, for the purposes of this talk, that's accurate enough. Um, Family Search is the, the Mormons database, the Church of Latter-day Saints. It's huge and it's getting bigger all the time. Um, it's very good for London as well. Sometimes if you can't find something on Ancestry, have a look on Family Search. Once you've found the person you're looking for and you've got the date and the parish, you can then go back to Ancestry, browse your way through and find the entry. The transcription is better on Family Search than on Ancestry, definitely. Uh, briefly mentioned Pallas Marriage Index. Uh, it's another thing that's available on, uh, through Ancestry. It's really very good for London because it covers all but two of the 103 parishes in the old city of London. So it's, it's good for city uh, marriages. And Boyd's Marriage Index is a good one. It's on Find My Past. Um, index to English Marriages, and it says down here... Registers from over 4,300 parishes have been indexed, a total of over 7 million names, and over a million of them are London and Middlesex marriages. So another source to consider, and that's available through Find My Past, courtesy of the Society of Genealogists. Um, Find My Past have also got something called the West Middlesex Marriage Index, which the uh, West Middlesex Family History Society have worked on. There are 85,000 marriages on that last time I checked. And there's something called the London Docklands Baptism. I haven't looked at that for a while, but last time I checked, there were 481,000 baptisms on there. So those are mainly East London parishes and also some down Rotherhithe, south of the river. Um, another thing to mention I haven't got up here is that Find My Past have now released the, the first tranche of Westminster parish registers. Very good collection, which is going to grow. At the moment, it's just parish registers, but if we look on their website, this is very, very tempting, tantalising. Under their special collections, they've got various deals with record offices around the country. But the Westminster one is particularly exciting because this material has been quite difficult to access over the years. So at the moment, they've got parish registers 1539 to 1945. But if you have a look at what's going to appear there, it says in the coming months. Look at all that quite remarkable, amazing stuff. Um, settlement examination books, rape books, apprenticeship registers, and right down the bottom, we'll mention that in a minute, but wills and probate registers, records for Westminster. So that's going to grow and grow, and that's going to become a very, very useful resource. Uh, right, I will briefly mention the National Index of Parish Registers. This is a multi-volume publication that the Society of Genealogists have put together. This is the volume for London and Middlesex, and it lists by ancient parishes, every church that they've been able to identify, churches and including nonconformist chapels and churches, um, Roman Catholic churches as well. And it mentioned, it just gives a very brief guide to the dates, the holdings, where they're held, if there are any indexes, um, all, all sorts of things coming up there. And it's all, it first starts with the City of London and then goes on to the rest of Middlesex. So... If you're interested, for example, in Enfield, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different churches, not just 
the, the, parish, it's the parish church itself. So very good information. Cliff Webb, we can thank for that one. There we go. Give him his, give him his dues. Uh, right, we'll move on to cemeteries and burials. Church of England parish registers. Now, obviously, the same that the, the ancestry database that we've looked at already also covers records of uh, burials, burial registers in Church of England parishes. So that's available on Ancestry. And similarly, for Westminster, the, uh, the Westminster Church is on Find My Past. I will now mention the City of London Burial Index. This is a major undertaking. It was uh, Cliff Webb who started it, indexed 75 city parishes, 35,000 names in them. 23 remaining parishes have been added by a woman called Monica Stevens. If any of you ever go to the London Metropolitan Archives, you'll see Monica there. And apparently she was here last week, I've been told. Wonderful woman. She added 80,000 entries to that database herself. She is just a, a phenomenal person. There, there's, they're now in the process of adding... It was originally 1813 up to the 1850s. They're now adding the earlier one, 1754 up to 1812. So this is a, a growing thing. I would always advise you, I know when we presented with these search screens, we want to just go straight in and search. Have a scroll down the page and read a little bit about what it is you're actually searching. You'll definitely find out some interesting things. All the, all the websites, Find My Past are very good at it, Ancestry are good at it as well. They give you some really good background information there about what it is you're actually looking at and sometimes, more importantly, what you're not looking at. Okay. Right. 1850 is very significant in London because most urban churchyards were closed down in the early 1850s. There's a pretty good reason why they were closed down. And I want to just give you a little reading from one of my favourite books called Necropolis, London and Its Dead. It is gory, let's say that. It doesn't pull any punches. I want to read you a little bit. Remember we saw that burying ground outside where the London Metropolitan Archives is? Any, have you, any of you go to the London Metropolitan Archives? Do you have your lunch in the little park just across the road? You won't anymore. <laughs> this was um, Spa Fields Burial Ground. And there's a bit about it in this book here. There's quite a lot about it, actually. Um, there was a, a man called George Walker who campaigned in the... I'm uh, not sure what sort of period it was. It must have been the 1830s and 1840s about the state of London graveyards. And he went around and he visited graveyards. He spoke to undertakers. He spoke to local residents. He spoke to the clergy. And some of the stuff he found out was really quite shocking. Um, as part of his evidence, Walker circulated a pamphlet on Sparfields, Clerkenwell. And it says here, this, The ground was, said Walker, saturated with the dead. No undertaker can explain it, excepting by a shrug of the shoulders. I can confirm from frequent personal observation that enormous numbers of dead have been deposited here. It emerged that bodies were burned behind a brick enclosure and gravestones moved about to give an appearance of emptiness in certain parts of the ground. Sparfields was designed to hold 1,000 bodies. Walker calculated that by burning coffins, mutilating remains and using vast quantities of quicklime, at least 80,000 corpses had been buried there. Next time you're having your lunch across <laughs> there, just think. It is quite horrible, and that's just one, that's just one graveyard. Um, it must have been... I mean, some of the stories in there, people 
lying in their, in their beds by open windows with a cemetery right next to them, thinking, I'm going to be in there in a day or two, and seeing graves being opened and bodies being dug up as new ones were being put in. It's quite horrible. So the solution was, well, part of the solution was what they called the Magnificent Seven. Seven churchyards opened up on the outskirts of what were then the outskirts of London um, in green belt areas that we would refer to them. So they were Abney Park, Brompton, Highgate, Kensal Green, Nunhead, Tower Hamlets and West Norwood. Highgate, the registers for Highgate are available on Ancestry as part of their London Parish Register collection. You're, you're searching them if you're searching that. Abney Park, they've indexed their records and they've put their, theirs online. It's quite a basic index, um, obviously done by volunteers, done by their trust. And you can do a basic search and let's just do a little search here because the founder of the Salvation Army is buried there. So there we go, William Boo, there he is, he's buried there. And this links quite nicely because there's a grave location, just gives you the square that the grave's in, opens up a map, and at least your search is limited to a particular square then. I would imagine that uh, William Boo's grave's probably pretty easy to find down there, but if your ancestors are buried there, they might not quite be, be so well maintained. But still, these seven cemeteries weren't enough. And in 1850, a search was commissioned for a new site which would be of sufficient size and splendor to serve the burial needs of the metropolis for at least 500 years. And the site they found was Brookwood Cemetery. It was actually created by an Act of Parliament in 1852. 2,000 acres. I understand that only a small portion of it has ever been used. And obviously with the, the increase in people being cremated rather than buried, chances are it will never be filled up. And I know they said that in the past about cemeteries, but I really feel it won't. Um, Brookwood is an amazing place. I don't know if you've ever been down there. It's, it's just phenomenally huge. It's a massive place. It had its own railway station, the Necropolis Railway. This is next to Waterloo Station. And you could actually have the service on the train. We'll get on the train have the service, get down the other end and bury the body. That's how they did it. It would probably still be there today. It was, it was hit by a bomb in uh, 1941. But the records of Brookwood Cemetery, you can, they're, they're held by the Surrey History Centre in Woking. I think they've got them here at the Mormon place. I'd have to, I meant to check that actually before coming in here. But I've got a feeling that the uh, Latter-day Saints have got copies of the registers on microfilm available here for Brookwood. Not indexed. So, your guide to all this is this wonderful book. Oh, look, it's revised by Cliff Webb. <laughs> Greater London Cemeteries and Crematoria. Again, by district and by name of cemetery, it tells you where the registers are, what red date the registers begin, and crucially, whether you can search them yourself or whether you have to commission a search. You can understand that cemeteries, particularly you know, active cemeteries, probably get a little bit annoyed by family historians coming around and trying to search their registers when they've got a day-to-day -day job to do of, of burying people today. So we have to be a little bit sensitive about how we approach them, just understand that this is not their primary concern. Right, we'll move on to wills. When we're looking at wills, do not ignore the Prerogative Court of Canterbury. I don't have time to go into all the, the, the details of proving wills, but... The Prerogative Court of Canterbury was the superior court of probate for the whole of England and Wales. 
Um, the records are held here by the National Archives and are fully searchable online. Being a court, although it's called the court, Prerogative Court of Canterbury, the offices were in London, so it is essentially a London court anyway, but increasingly, particularly up to, towards the, the closing of all these courts in 1858, more and more Londoners were having their wills proved at the Prerogative Court of Canterbury rather than one of the many other London courts, namely the Consistory Court of London, Archdeaconry Court of Middlesex, Commissary Court of London, Archdeaconry Court of London, all these different courts of the Dean and Chapter of St Paul's. Good news, ancestry. Come to our rescue. They are all now indexed. Usual health warnings, indexing, is it all complete? Don't know, but you can search them all. London, England, Wills and Probate, 1507 to 1858. Used to be a complete nightmare searching London Wills because they were at the at Guildhall Library, they were at London Metropolitan Archives, Croydon have got some of them, they were at the um, Lambeth, Lambeth Palace Library. So lots of places. Now you can search all of those courts I just listed in one go. Deanery of the Arches is separate, Deanery of Croydon, Dean Chapter of Westminster, as I said before and showed you briefly, they will be available on Find My Past, the Westminster Wills. At the moment, they are still held at City of Westminster Archives, and that's where you'd need to go to do a search. Court of Husting, another, another little court. We have a guide. Probate jurisdictions where to look for wills. Do not leave home without it. It's an essential guide to wills, county by county. It tells you what courts were in operation before 1858. It tells you where the records are held. It tells you what indexes there are. It tells you if there are printed copies. What it won't be particularly good for, this is the fifth edition, which was published in 2002. So advances in online indexes will not be covered in that. I believe there's a new edition coming out very soon, which will cover that. But um, I say that's, that's your guide, the Gibson Guide, Jeremy Gibson and Elsa Churchill, not Cliff Webb. Um, let's move on very quickly now to I want to look at freedom records and apprenticeships. I'm going to rush through some of these because I just want to raise your awareness of them just to, to so that you know these things exist. So records of guilds and livery companies. There's a very good guide. I don't know if this is still available or not. Guildhall Library Research Guide number three, which lists all the London guilds and livery companies and again tells you what records exist um, admission papers, uh, wardens' account books, freedom declarations, apprentices' lists, all sorts of things for each of the, of the companies. Some of them are still held by the companies themselves and they can be a little bit precious about them. But most of them are at Guildhall Library. There is a database which is being added to gradually called the London Apprenticeship Abstracts on the British Origins website. Um, there are now... 165,000 record abstracts contained in the database. So it says here, in nearly every case, the father, more rarely the mother of the apprentice, is given with their place of residence, which can be anywhere in the British Isles or overseas. This is the thing I was telling you about before, about finding where your ancestors came from before they came to London. This is going to be one of your best guides if your ancestors were l apprentices to one of the London livery companies. It's a very good chance that you can find that information through through this. Um, so that's on the British Origins website, origins.net. Apprentices of Great Britain is a database which is available, just trying to remember, it's, uh, that's on Find My Past, yeah, Apprentices of Great Britain, because there was a tax payable on apprenticeships 
between the years 1710 to 1814, and some of the records of that tax, which are held here at the National Archives, have been indexed, and you can find those on Find My Past. Audrey, do you have an update on this? They're all in Ancestry as well. There we go. Not just that bit. Okay, there we go. Thank you very much for that. So those can now be searched very easily online. City of London Freedom Records are amazing. They are available on Ancestry and all digital scans of the actual documents. I'm going to show you one of those later on, but we won't deal with that now. But anyone who became a freeman of the City of London, the records are held there and are available to be searched on the Ancestry website. Um, I will, I'm going to slip over the Association of Thrills. We don't have time to go into that, but it's another database which lists lots of Londoners on the British Origins website. So I've shown you the City Livery Company's book. We'll move on to lists of names, directories. Obviously, the Kelly's directories and other post office directories, earlier ones for London, just because they put your person in a particular place at a particular time can be very useful. They're not going to give you a lot of family history background, but just placing someone in a particular place, in an occupation at a particular time, can lead you on to other sources. Rate books, similarly, really underused source because they're held generally by the local studies libraries. Um, they're not held centrally, but they can be very useful, again, to find out when someone was at a particular address. When did they appear there? When did they leave? That can give you big clues to, to what's happening in their lives. Similarly, poll books, electoral registers, Ancestry have just put the whole collection of London electoral registers online. Um, I think it's, it's huge that, just to be able to find people, particularly after 1911, finding people in addresses in London after 1911. Harder to use in the census because you don't have the whole family group, but if you have a man and a woman at the same address with the same name, you can start to think, yeah, that's probably the married couple, look for a marriage to confirm it and so on. Hearth tax. Wonderful thought. I love the hearth tax. And this is a particularly, particular favourite of mine, this page. This is from the hearth tax of 1666, City of London. And this is Pudding Lane in London. And in Pudding Lane, we have Mr Thomas Farriner up here, a baker, paying for five hearths and one oven. And we know what happened in that oven? The fire of London started. Only about two or three weeks after this was taken. It was August 1666. Later in September, the fire of London started, and they think it was in that oven, one oven. But the clerk just wrote down very casually, completing this, this particular list. So half tax, it's very good. Um, there's not a lot indexed, but you can find the, the, the material here and... I think on, there's an academic website. If you Google Hearth Tax London, you will find some, some listings on there. But I think it's something that will happen over the next few years, that this is one of the things Hearth Tax will go online more. It's almost, it's not quite a census, but it's a sort of head of household census anyway, going back to the, the mid-17th century. The Sun Fire Office insurance was a very important thing. If you hadn't paid your insurance, they wouldn't put your fire out, basically. Um, so that's why you see sometimes you're looking... I mean, I hope when you walk around London you don't look like this, but you look around and see what's going on. Because You look on the side of these buildings and you see these old insurance plates um, and, and badges up on the wall. 
So the, the fire brigade employed by the insurance company would come along and look up and say, yeah, okay, yeah, we can put this one out because he's, because he's paid up there. Um, but the records, again, can be very useful. They're searchable through the access to archives. I'm not actually sure the status of this with the new catalogue of the National Archives because I tried to search earlier on today and I got a result but then couldn't flick, click on to the... Actually, I'll go to the advanced search. The, the best way to search this, although the records are now held at the London Metropolitan Archives, on this database, they're still down as Guildhall Library. So if you select Guildhall Library as your repository on access to archives and type in Thomas... Well, type in the name you're looking for and do a search. So here we go. There's a person I'm interested in, that, but it says, sorry, we could not find the catalogue you asked for. I'm, I'm going to have to inquire and find out what's, what's happening there. But you can get results but you can't get through to the main catalogue entry. So basically it's listing Londoners who paid the insurance policy through the Sun Insurance Office. And uh, the records are on there at the moment from 1790 to 1839, and they are adding stuff all the time. Right, a couple of books to mention. The Gibson Guide, list of Londoners. Some of these books I've got here are quite old editions, but this one, I think there's a much more recent edition of this. List of Londoners, all sorts of miscellaneous indexes, databases, uh, record office holdings and so on, giving you just databases, th things that you would never have thought of looking at. Bank, Bank of England, Directors of the Bank of England, there's a database of those. There's um, book about engravers, 3,500 engravers from the 16th and 19th century listed there. So you never know what you'll find. That's Jeremy Gibson, list of Londoners. And My Ancestors Were Londoners by Cliff Webb is here. Um, similar sort of thing, but gives you just lots of really good sources for London family history in there. Recommend both of those books very highly. A um, couple of things just to show you. Boyd's Londoners is another very good database, which is available on Find My Past and therefore probably won't open on that link. Let's see if I can go back to the one I had here. Um, Boyd's Londoners is something I haven't really mentioned. We've mentioned Boyd's Marriage Index, but Percival Boyd is another man who, like Cliff Webb, did a huge amount of indexing and a huge amount of stuff that's helped us looking for our London ancestors. Um, I can't get it up at the moment, but if you look on Find My Past, there's a thing called Boyd's Londoners. Actually, I'll show you a, a page from it in a little, in a minute. The Old Bailey Online. You all had to play around with the Old Bailey Online? Lovely database. Basically, abstracts from court cases held at the Old Bailey. All human life is out there, really. You can search by name. You can search by address. So when I was doing research on Middleton Street when I used to work at the Family Records Centre, um, just type in Middleton Street, and you'll find about robberies, about people trying to pass false coinage, a murder that took place in, in there. It's, it's, it's wonderful stuff, really, really good database. So do have a little play around with that. And I just want to show you this, because I think that Family history can be a bit dull sometimes when we're just looking at documents and names and dates. So this is a, a good guide um, to visual archives. And again, you can just search by name. You can browse through different ways. I discovered a couple of uh, photographs of Middleton Street that I didn't even know existed um, when I was doing this. So some of them are not that old, but there's a nice, a nice picture. Anyone who used to work at the Family Record Centre coming down from Angel would have walked around that corner. Um, and the Family Record Centre was just up there at the end of the road. Oh, no, I'm the wrong way around, actually. That's the other side of the road. 
Uh, that's, that's going down the other way away from Xmas Market. But type in a name, the street, you probably find something from where one of your ancestors lived. So just, just Google collage and you'll find it. I don't know how many books have been written about London over the years, hundreds, thousands, millions probably. Um, I'm just going to mention one because I think it's a really good book, uh, a guy called Roy Porter, London, A Social History. Just a really good guide to London's history and to the people who lived in London, about the growth of London, about the development, about some of the things I've been saying about how London changed over the years. It's, so it's a very good read, very, very readable, um, not too academic, not too lowbrow either. Just about right. Now, I'm going to have a whistle-stop case study now. just want to bring some of these things together. Two reasons I want to do this. One, because I want to illustrate some London sources. And two, because this is a brick wall that I've been working on for over 20 years. And one day I'm going to do a talk and someone in the audience is going to say, yeah, I know this, I can solve it for you. <laughs> and I'm hoping it's going to be one of you today. And I'll buy you a pint or more. I might, I'll buy you a pub, actually. <laughs> this is my man I'm looking for, a man called Thomas Port. who's a man that we looked up just a minute ago. He was born in, as it says here, very helpfully, Middlesex, London. Thank you. Lovely. We've all seen that, haven't we? He's actually living up in Birmingham in 1851. Um, but as you can see from his wife's place of birth and his children, he was, actually, he was in Buckingham for a while. So there we are, 1851 census, born Middlesex, London. 1861 census, there he is right at the top of the page, born Middlesex, London. 1871 census, Middlesex, London. 1881 census, are we detecting a theme here? Middlesex, London. It's not telling me where in London. He died in the 1890s. So I'm very fortunate that in the 1891 census, although it's a bit difficult to read, a bit more precise, London, St Pancras. So I've got that one little clue to go on, that he was born in St Pancras. Now I found that, I don't know how many years ago, probably not long after the 1891 census came out. <laughs> Seriously. Of course there is no trace for a baptism of Thomas Port in any of the sources that I've listed up above, um, in any of the parish registers which could reasonably be described as St Pancras, any of the nonconformist registers, anything like that. The day that the London Parish Register database came out on Ancestry was one of the most exciting days of my life because I thought, oh, here we go, I'm going to find it, I'm going to find him. Thomas Portman. No, no. And every time a new database comes out, tried all these sources, nothing. Not always a problem because you've got a person's marriage certificate, so you know their father's name, don't you? Look, there's his father's name there. There it is, look. Ah, Okay. Right, he's decided not to tell us his father's name. Very helpful. This is when he was marrying in 1847 in Buckingham. Describes himself as a draper. And, of course, he's not in the 1841 census for Buckingham. In fact, I cannot find him in the 1841 census. Um, his wife, Mary, unfortunately died a few years later and he moved away from Buckingham into the West Midlands and he married again. Now, what we have to imagine here is he's known in Buckingham. Everyone in Buckingham knows him. I mean, not everyone, but enough people know him so that he can't lie about that. They know that he doesn't know his father. When he's moved to Smethwick, he can lie. Because suddenly he's got a father who's conveniently deceased, to explain the fact that he's not at the wedding. But in my experience of inventions like this, there's always a little seed of truth. There's something. Now... 
why would you say that your father was a grocer if there wasn't some truth in that, that there was something to do with it? He's a draper himself. He's not marrying the daughter of a grocer. So why would you invent that? There's, there's got to be something about that, that, you know, that there's some element of truth in it. So, to start la thinking laterally. Now, good news is that Port is not a common name. Port's a fairly uncommon surname. There's not many ports around. Now, I always say to people, first thing to do if you're stuck with a family, put in the surname and the place they came from into Google and see what you get. Port London. <laughs> Damn, it's not going to work, is it? Not going to work. We're not going to get anywhere with that. So, two ways of searching. Focused approach, where you think, I'm going to search a particular document, I'm going to see what I find in it, or the scattergun approach, which is where you bung something into Google. That one's not going to work so well. But I did find this is the Sun Insurance thing. Because I put in the name Thomas Port and Grocer in the, the National Archives website, and I came up with this record. So here we have, in 1820, which was the year before my Thomas was born, a Thomas Port living in Brook Street, Fitzroy Square, which is St Pancras, is underneath Centre Point, the big, uh, not Centre Point, Capital Tower. And he's a grocer. So that makes me think, right, here's something to go with. Here's a theory. Now, I don't think, I still don't think that this Thomas is my man's father, but I think he's his uncle. I think he's connected to my Thomas. Because Thomas has said, I'm born in St Pancras, and my father was Thomas Port, or he's made up the fact that his father was Thomas Port, uh, grocer. If this really was his father, he would have said it the first time he got married. He didn't. He only said it when he was living somewhere where people didn't know him. So it doesn't really tell me anything except that it tells me there is a Thomas Port who was a grocer who lived in St Pancras at the right time. Here he is again in the rape books. Here's Thomas Port. This is, I think, 1829. Thomas Port and Henry Street, which is actually just around the corner from Brook Street. And this E means that it's empty. So the man's come to get the rates and Thomas has gone. So that's the last time he appears in the rate books for St Pancras. Sorry, that was, so it was 18, yeah, January 1829. No trace of a burial in St Pancras area around then, so he didn't die, that I can tell, around then, likely that he moved away. I have actually think I found this Thomas's death in Berkhamsted in Hertfordshire in 1840, but you see, not 1841, when he might have told me something, 1840. Um, he's also on the Old Bailey website, it's Thomas Port. He had a pound of cheese stolen from him. Um, but the only thing I had to go, to really, go on, really, was this connection to Buckingham. Now, if you go onto the free BMD website, not you'd want to to do this, but if you did, and you put in the surname Port, the registration district Buckingham, and nothing else, so just those two things, Port, Buckingham, no restriction on year, births, marriages, or deaths, you would get four entries. You would get my Thomas's marriage that we've shown you, and the births of two of his children. That's my great-grandfather, Frederick Thomas Port, there. So that's all you get. And the year before Thomas marries, you get the death of a woman called Mary Ann Port. Now, this is not proof, this is all just a theory, but you think perhaps there's a connection. All within a few years of each other, him marrying a year after his mother died, possibly. Because this woman, when you get a death certificate, is a spinster. She's the right age to have been Thomas's mother. She would have been in her 20s when he was born. But no proof. But there's something to go on. 
So I decided to find out whatever I could about Mary Ann Port, and I found out a lot about her. I have never proved the link, not yet anyway, but it's my theory. Here's one thing I found. I found the will, just by looking for the name Port on, in wills, I found the will of a man called Samuel Port. Now, although his children are not named explicitly in this will, it turns out that Mary Ann is his daughter. I know that from a chancery case that went on for about 20 years. Mary Ann is Samuel's daughter, so I can work on Samuel now, find out some information about him. And here is the baptism. This is in uh, uh, the All Hallows Barking by the Tower in the City of London. Mary Ann, daughter of Samuel Elizabeth Port in 1788. This is uh, her baptism. I'm building up a picture of this Mary Ann. Here's a wonderful document. This is City of London Freedom Indenture. Samuel Port, son of Thomas Port of Sherburne in the county of Oxford, farmer, that's put himself apprentice to Jonathan Granger. So we've got more names to it. We now know where Samuel came from. He wasn't a Londoner after all. He came from Oxfordshire. And he was apprenticed to this man called Jonathan Granger. This is just a small sample of the documents that I've uncovered over the years. Here is a page from Boyd's London Inhabitants. And there's Jonathan Granger, whose wife was Mary Port, daughter of Thomas Port, a yeoman, Dorchester, Oxfordshire. So our Samuel, it turns out, was apprenticed to his great-uncle, it was actually his great uncle he'd, he'd been apprenticed to. But all these little bits are just helping to tell the story. As I said, I've never proved this, but I've fallen in love with this family because this is where they came from. <laughs> Wouldn't you want that to be the village that your ancestors came from? This is Dorchester in Oxfordshire. It's absolutely... Okay, that's an old picture, but I tell you, it hasn't changed much, apart from the fact that you've got some Land Rovers parked along, <laughs> along the side of the road there. The, the village looks pretty much the same. It's absolutely beautiful. So... That's just a small sample of the documents I've looked at to, to try to, to solve this problem. As I say, I haven't solved it yet. When I do, you'll hear. Not just because I'll tell everyone. I will shout so loud, wherever you are, you will know, ah, oh, Dave solved that brick wall of his. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast was recorded live on the 14th of June, 2012, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>